At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. So this is the beginning of a project that we've been working on for a long time. Thanks to our director of basketball research, Ben Dole, for helping to put together some of these numbers. What we're going to do is we're going to start doing reports on agents. And I think the best way to do that is to try to be as objective about it as possible. Now, of course, there's going to be subjectivity in that because you're, whenever you're going to say, oh, this is a good contract, this is a bad contract, this agent did well, this agent didn't, you have to subjectively think of what the market was at the time, whether that was above or below expectations, whether you got the player into a situation that was going to help them or not. I mean, all of that is very nebulous. And so we're trying to make it as objective as we can by going through what the contracts are, but clearly there's going to be some opinion there. But I think that Danny and I focus on this as much as anyone. And if there is anyone qualified to do this, it's us. We're going to try to stay away mostly from conjecture and bad mouthing and just focus on the actual performance on things that, that are public for these agents. So uh, what do you think here? Is, is this possible, Danny? Are we biting off more than, than we could chew? Or or is this uh, like a, a realistic goal? I, I think it's a realistic aspiration. There are always going to be challenges, but the I, I think the idea behind it is sound. And an imp- an, another important piece of context here, and this is something we talk about a fair amount on the general manager side, often the counterparts to agents, is the duality where they the agent does not have final say on whether or not to approve a specific contract, but they do have influential power. So remember, we've talked about how Sam Presti does a really good job convincing ownership of things, and there are other GMs that can't get their owner to do things. Agents are the same. Sometimes players make mistakes turning down lucrative offers. Sometimes they, all those sorts of things. And so I think we'll try to provide that context when applicable. But again, that is a part of the agent's job is telling them, hey, this is a really good deal. Don't turn this down. And they're not solely responsible, but it's worth, it's a part of their job. Yeah, that's a, a great point there because you don't know what the internal dynamics there are for a team. You don't know what it is in the agent side. Either is the player turning it down because the agent told him to, or is he doing it because someone else told him to, or because he has his own opinion that that's not what he wants. You never know that. So basically, we, we yeah. have a pretty good example of that in this in this podcast. <laughs> yes, yeah, we do. And so now there are definitely people out there who are more informed as to that stuff there are definitely people out there who are more informed as to oh hey maybe these are the other offers that this player had that kind of thing 
Unfortunately, there's a reason nobody else has tried this project before, and that is that most people, frankly, need agents. Uh, most reporters, most people on teams, uh, you would be hard-pressed, really, to find anyone else who even is willing to do this right now because nobody wants to upset agents. Somebody is going to have to be last in this when we finally go through and rank all these agents after doing these individual reports. And so... I it's harder to do that obviously than with players and with teams but they are an important part of this and so kind of the criteria that I'm looking at here is if I had a close friend or a family member who was looking for NBA representation how would I feel about having them go with this agent in particular that's the overall approach that I am looking at this one. Oh, and one other clarification we're focusing on how that agent negotiates nba contracts there are a lot of other parts to being an agent oh yeah that are that are not a part of this but considering that information is not public it would be really hard to do that well and i mean that's uh, that's another thing too i mean for example like draymond green I didn't think that Wasserman did a great job negotiating his five-year deal with the Warriors in 2015. I thought he, he probably should have been able to get the max there, and he didn't. And so they didn't do that great of a job with that. But if they were involved in his off-court marketing, which probably made up for whatever the shortfall was with the Warriors, and then some, they did an amazing job. Like Draymond Green had much more profile than many other players who are equally as good as him in terms of getting commercials and endorsements and that kind of stuff so that part of it we're not considering this is solely based on what you are doing as far as nba contracts trades strictly focusing on basketball here so yeah that is that is a very important distinction as well another important distinction this isn't business school this isn't an average gpa of 3.3 it's same as we do with our off-season grades a c is not an insult a c is you did about what was expected to be done and for a lot of players you know there's a max salary there's a rookie scale it's tough to do much better than average when the contracts are pretty much prescribed for you and so a, a, a C average is like totally fine. That shouldn't be taken as an insult. Many people will because you went to a school where the C students uh, were considered to be below average, but that's not how we're doing it. We're trying to do this with a normal distribution uh, of contracts uh, well, from, and, yeah. And there's another reason why you do that. And this is, you know, I went to law school where, where a lot of times you don't do yeah. that is because that creates availability for, for differentiation. If if everybody's Absolutely. in the A to B range, then there isn't a lot to do it. But if, you, if you're running all the way from C to A and all the way down from C to F, then you can do gradations a lot better. And that's part of the reason why we do it for off-season grades and everything else. Because if everybody's in A or B, then, then you're not getting, you, the listener, is not getting as much out of it. The only other issue that we have with this data set is sometimes it is hard to put together. It's very easy to see who is with what agent now. It is harder to see, to find when players joined the agency sometimes but even harder is players who have left the agency and gone somewhere else i mean this is a massive project where you know, we're gonna be we've got hundreds of data points and so it is it was a little bit cost prohibitive to go through like if we're doing rich paul for example everyone knows the the morris twins uh, having left him but others it's a it's a little bit harder to find that information so as we go through we will try to do that i think i have a pretty good handle and please if we miss ones uh, let us know i have a pretty good handle on when all of the players joined rich paul and clutch sports 
so I'm not going to give him credit for contracts that were negotiated before then. But as far as players who left there that he negotiated their contracts, there aren't that many of those that I could find that were were big contracts. So considering he, as of now, has 24 players in the NBA, that's not going to really affect things too much is my hope so that's it what we're dealing with here we're gonna we got plenty of time now to go through and we're gonna try and do you know at least 10 or so of the major agents and, and agencies and as always when we start a new project feedback really appreciate it let us know if you think that this should be truncated if it's not interesting just get straight to the rankings and don't do each individual agent ways to make this clearer and more interesting any more fair any of that uh we would definitely appreciate any of that feedback we're trying to do the best job we can with the information that's available but uh any further information obviously is much appreciated okay quick break here and then we'll get to talking about some of uh, how rich paul has done for some of these individual clients man it is crazy to think that i've been working with helix sleep since 2015 and i think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners if you've never heard it before that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom and there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one size fits all they found the one formula the one mattress that was going to work for everyone my then girlfriend now wife and i ordered that mattress we ended up having to return it because hey guess what not everyone is the same and then she did some more research and found helix sleep we took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types and uh, helix offers 20 unique matches every sleeps differently and helix matches are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences hot or cold side sleeper back sleeper so take that helix sleep quiz find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge it's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home you're like well how should i order this if i can't sleep I'm like yeah you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do i take my shoes off do i leave my shoes on but then my feet kind of hang off the bed because i don't want to put my shoes on the bed and is it weird that i'm laying here for more than 30 seconds you can't tell anything under those circumstances you might as well just order it get it sent to your house get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easier slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us man i just love american giant just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas I'm going to be freezing, but the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice 
heavy material that'll keep you warm. It's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us all right i think it's fair let's just go in alphabetical order here and there's also what i'm going to try to do is just give equal weight to all of these players now maybe if it's just he's only negotiated one rookie scale contract for a player maybe that deserves less weight than players that he's negotiating second contracts for uh because that's just it's not as difficult but you've got guys all up and down the spectrum and yeah you know it's great if he can negotiate a max contract for some guys but we're trying to have this be almost a guide in some ways of hey who would you want to be going with and so it's not just the max guys who matter in that so how he does for Contavious Caldwell Pope is just as important as how he does for LeBron James. Let's start with Darius Basley, a rookie skill contract signed in 2019. I thought that Paul, this is a little bit out of the criteria we're talking about, but did a good job of getting him paid for a year while he skipped college. That turned out to look like a pretty good decision. And then to get him drafted 23rd when he didn't play college basketball, I thought that was a, a pretty good performance. I, I gave an A minus for uh, what he's done for Basley so far. Yeah, I, I think getting a guy getting a guy drafted in the un, un, the unusual situation with Basley being a New Balance intern, you know, all that kind of stuff. I thought I thought the Paul did well by him too. Malik Beasley is an interesting one, and this is a, a pattern we've seen a couple of times with Paul. He joined Rich Paul in September of 2019. Reports indicated that he had turned down a three-year, thirty million dollar extension before joining Paul. A lot of times when that happens, I mean, there's no tampering rules when it comes to agents, but I think it's a reasonable inference that if a player turns down a contract and then immediately joins another agent, that that agent was probably encouraging him to turn down that contract, even though he wasn't technically with him yet. So I thought that was a bad decision at the time to turn that down. With the trade to Minnesota, uh, Malik Beasley has, uh, had a few games, but was starting to look like he might beat that. Now, of course, you've got risk there as well. And if, let's say, Beasley had just been stuck with Denver all year and never, I mean, he had a bad year with Denver, if he just doesn't get traded. And, and that was perhaps, not yeah. and that was not a Paul-engineered trade. He wasn't the centerpiece of that or anything. He was, he was included and yeah. important, but a different type of thing. Yeah. Now, I mean, maybe there's some stuff behind the scenes where Paul made it clear he wasn't going to resign with them or was going to make things difficult and maybe they're more likely to to want to move him. I mean, but that trade has kind of saved that decision in some respects. And so I, I didn't think that that was 
a great job but now with the trade he may actually end up doing better than that i'm not sure that that you know that could be outcome-based decision making i think he'll do better than 30 million dollar guaranteed this offseason but uh, tough to say that for sure and you could have had that for sure back then so uh, i would say ultimately i would go with a c minus for that it could end up working out but i don't necessarily like the process there there's a lot of risk involved in a player who's not a clear starter for a team and i mean denver denver could remember what they wielded was match rights and so and in a year that not many teams are going to have cap space so that could have gone really sour for beasley and he hasn't gotten paid yet so i i agree with you i might have even gone a little lower yeah well I guess the other thing too is you don't know like maybe the player is like hey I don't care about the money as much I want to go somewhere where I can be a starter he's got Will Barton and Gary Harris in front of him in Denver so maybe that was part of it too is just not wanting to be there anymore and that that's something that sure. we don't know but yeah uh, I, I'm uh Spe- the fact that it could actually work out I, I'm being a little more charitable there speaking of yeah. not wanting to be there anymore let's talk about Eric Bledsoe yeah yeah because he tweeted that uh Bledsoe is an interesting one. Let's go back. We can start in chronological order. You'll recall the summer of 2014, he was in the restricted free agency dance with Phoenix. He'd been traded there. This is a longtime clutch client. Uh, Bledsoe had been traded there the previous summer, had a really nice year, but also suffered a a knee injury and missed time. Uh, But Phoenix had a really nice season. It seemed like at the time that they were really on the come. Uh, They were going to be moving into at least, you know, a a period of time of playoff contention. That obviously didn't end up happening. And ultimately, he ended up signing a five-year, $70 million deal. The max was five for 80 that year. But the key element that I think got Phoenix to sign this was the news of the tv deal came out that september and so he then ended up signing it but it looked like he probably i would say was a little bit underpaid for what the thought of what he was going to be i I think people were thinking he's going to be kind of a close to all-star player uh throughout his time in phoenix and was still improving as of that time so i thought that the five for 70 while taking the qualifying offer would have been bad and i'm sure phoenix moved their offer up part of the reason they did that is because they knew the salary cap was going to be exploding and so uh ultimately i think you know to be in the restricted free agent process get a five-year 70 million dollar deal and certainly lebron james was toasting with him on social media at the time that it was a really good deal i don't think it was i think it was pretty much pretty average uh as of that time they had to to fight to get it so maybe a c plus uh, on that particular deal what are your thoughts on that That, that's it's a tough one to grade because of all those factors that i was that i just alluded to i think that's about right one of the interesting questions with that contract is whether bledsoe would have rather become a free agent earlier you know with the especially once the tv deal exploded take it's still a lot of money if it would have been four years at the same annual rate maybe the Suns weren't willing to do that um but that is a lot of money secured and all that and it was Bledsoe's first big contract so yeah I think in in the in the C plus B minus range is where it would have been yeah then he recently signed a four-year 70 million dollar well, the deal. timing on this recently I think is important it was before the 2019 playoffs yes yeah, so I, I gave that one a B. I thought that's a solid value. Now, it's not fully guaranteed. Um, let me double check on how much of that is guaranteed. I think the last year is mostly non-guaranteed, but... 
But the piece of context that I think is important there is why I said it was because this was the before the 2019 playoffs is remember that Bledsoe, an important part of that great 18-19 and then obviously the 1920 Bucks teams, he was awful in the 2018 playoffs and getting the Bucks to commit to him when Malcolm Brogdon was about to hit restricted free agency, eventually sort of in a way choosing Bledsoe over Brogdon, getting that commitment of four years, 70 million, you know, that's the full value of the contract, getting that before the playoffs before that crucible, I thought that was in many ways the best part of Rich Paul's negotiating there. I thought the Bucks got a pretty decent deal at the time. It was only, the last year is only $4 million guaranteed. So it's really four years, $55 million guaranteed in total. Now, given Bledsoe's age, I think that that's reasonable. But I mean, he was, again, he was getting lower end all-star buzz with the Bucks. You didn't know what the playoffs were going to look like. It ended up being a disappointing playoffs for him. But so that's one that maybe didn't look as great at the time. But I also appreciate the idea that, and he was about to be a free agent in the summer of 2019. I, I appreciate the idea of getting something that was guaranteed at that point, reducing the risk. And that's one where maybe it was just, he wanted to be in Milwaukee. He was listening to what the player wanted. There was some injury risk uh, with Bledsoe as well. And so you didn't know what it was going to look like the point guard market in the summer of 2019 so this is maybe a discount off of what he potentially could have gotten in free agency but i i kind of liked the idea i am more my general philosophy is to be more err on the side of caution basically i would say with extensions and you know i think getting 80 to 90 percent of the money but getting it guaranteed in an extension instead of having to wait until you either the vagaries of the market or your own performance it could bump that down you know i I don't this wasn't like a steal of a deal for milwaukee it was pretty maybe getting more of that last year guaranteed would have been nice but ultimately i think especially because i think paul has kind of erred too far away from the bird in the hand at other times um, I, I gave this one a B. I thought this was a solid value. What do you think? I, I agree with that. And I think that the 2019 market would have been challenging for Bledsoe because the Bucks, you know, they, they whether the Brogdon decision would have been different in that circumstance, it, it very well could have been. But remember how long it took to settle. And maybe Bledsoe would have found a spot, you know, gotten the Danny Green slot with the Lakers, let's say. You know, another a, a clutch client going to the Lakers wouldn't have been that huge a surprise. But it's not like the money there would have been significantly better. So I, I, I don't know know if that would if that's really what it would have been and obviously the Lakers were trying for something else and if they get Kawhi then there's not really as much of a chance for Bledsoe anywhere so it would have been very risky for him especially with the uncertainty of the Bucks so I think locking it up early especially before that playoffs was a was a very good decision this one's pretty simple Miles Bridges rookie skill contract got drafted number 12 that's right about the range that he was supposed to be in so gave him a ended up going to charlotte gave him a, a c for that N- nothing really positive or negative to say in either direction on that one yep that's totally fine now we can move to one that's way more complicated contavious called Wolf. i mean it, it, so where we go back to here is the summer of 2017 remember that the summer of 2016 was the crazy summer and inferior players to contavious caldwell pope got a lot more money right i think kent Bazemore was probably a good analog he was getting four for 72 the Pistons offered him five for 80, essentially, and he didn't take it. Now, I, at the time, being a big KCP stan, 
thought that that was the right move to not take that. And as it turned out, he absolutely should have taken. Now he, he with the Lakers, he ended up going there and getting I think 17 million that year, then it was 12 million the next year, and then it reduced again to a 1 plus 1 for 16.6 million. But the reality is now we you know we're 4 years into what would have been that 5-year 80 million dollar deal and he's not going to get anywhere close to that and that's with him not getting hurt at all too during that time period. And so it really it was and Granted, I was right there with Rich Paul on this one. I I understood why he turned that down, but I was wrong and he was wrong. So that's one where I I gave him an F plus on that, only because it was understandable, but I I think he and I were both very wrong on that one. And so I've still, you know, you can say that he's recovered somewhat in the context of what the market has been to get Caldwell Pope, some of the contracts that he has gotten since then. But you're still dealing with the fact that you turned down that five for for 80. We're only going back two contracts here too, but that still doesn't look good. So I, I went with an F plus for uh these last two contracts a couple other things to note with kcp he did get the the choice involved in having that many contracts but there weren't that many teams with cap space so you know he got to be there and and one worth considering is that now especially with him him being a part of clutch on the lakers is that now that the, the lakers have bird rights it's possible that he ends up getting paid more on the next contract depending on how rob plank and the lakers are are seeing their books moving forward so there's a chance this changes significantly soon if 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 kcp ends up getting overpaid but that hasn't happened yet right and it's not going to be 16 million a year that seems very very unlikely uh, given and that's what it would have been obviously on that five for 80 that they turned out but i i was thinking at the time that he should be getting like five for 100 and that was overly rosy colored by 2016 and you know a lot of people made that mistake of thinking that it would be 2016 forever once 2016 happened and that that obviously uh was wrong anthony davis Paul has not negotiated any contracts for him. It was Thad Fouché who used to have him. September of 2018 is when Davis changed over to Rich Paul. But I gave Rich Paul an A because... Actually, Skip Jordan Clarkson. We'll go back to him in a second. But uh, I gave Rich Paul an A because he got AD to the Lakers. That's exactly what he wanted. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. One challenge of this in terms of evaluating from an agent perspective is that bird rights are less valuable with a max player who might take a short-term contract. You know, if AD, I, I wrote a whole piece on this for The Athletic laying out his contract options. If he wants to go short-term, then getting to the Lakers early, yeah, he's on the Lakers this year. You get all that lined up. They, they might not have had cap space. But it is still valuable because they have his bird rights he's there already all that sort of stuff okay time for another break here and then we'll talk about more of these rich anyone who's seen our youtube videos knows that i don't wear formal stuff all the time so when it's time to dress up rather than dress down i highly recommend inochino they were the official outfitter of my wedding i got my tux from there all my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well i felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly because when you go somewhere else you're not going to get something that's made for you so why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you and not only does indochino have the suits that made them famous but now they've got everything blazers pants women's wear outerwear designed and made for you hundreds 
of high quality fabrics to choose from european wools linen cottons tons of colors tons of patterns you can customize things like the lapel the vents the pockets and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style level up your game with indochino go to indochino.com use the code capspace user in our capspace we talk about all the time here on the program you get 10 percent off any purchase of 399 dollars or more that's 10 percent off at indochino i-n-d-o-c-h-i-n-o indochino.com and don't forget that capspace code to let them know that you came from us so jordan clarkson changed to rich paul in june of 2019 so rich paul has yet to negotiate a contract for him he, he was traded to utah i don't think rich paul really had much to, to do with that uh so jordan clarkson was uh previously with octagon we'll, we'll talk about the four-year 50 million dollar deal that he signed when, when we get to to octagon terrence ferguson seems like paul has a pretty good relationship with okc seeing some of his clients this is another one where rookie scale contract 21st overall pick back in 2017 i gave this one a a b plus again he was in australia got paid which i'll certainly take over the ncaa and getting drafted 21st about kind of where he was supposed to go but to get him there in a a non-traditional path where he's also getting paid was solid so uh give that a b plus thought that was solid work for him it was for me a little bit different because he Ferguson was getting recruited by some blue trip schools. I, I think Arizona was on his radar at the time. So maybe yeah, I think he, was... he couldn't. There was a thought he couldn't qualify. Okay, well if that if that, blue, if that was the case, the then obviously then going to going to Adelaide was a good decision. Darius Garland, I gave this one an A two to get a guy drafted fifth who played four games the previous oh, yeah. season and wasn't supposed to even be considered in that level as a player before he got injured at the start of the year. Pretty good. So that that's. that's that's pretty much straight A for me on that one. Draymond Green switched over to Clutch in March of 2019, signed a four-year, $99 million extension, fully guaranteed last offseason. That was the a quote-unquote max extension. Sorry, Rich, you, did, you don't get any extra points here for uh, getting the reporters to refer to it as a max extension when, yes, it was the maximum he could have gotten, but no, it is not close to the max salary. So good try there. Draymond, in theory could have waited longer could have extended could have qualified with all nba or defensive player of the year ha 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 as it turned out but we didn't know that at the time uh, to sign over a 200 million dollar contract could have signed a five-year deal up to the max with the warriors had he waited he was limited in the amount of extension because of his previous deal that five-year 82 million dollar deal that he signed with wasserman but i actually i gave this a b because I think Draymond wanted to stay. I think it's a good example of listening to the client. Maybe an indication again that, I mean, Draymond is very... uh very vocal about it what he wants i think also but it, i i thought this was good and to get the warriors who usually kind of get their pound of flesh uh to agree to this it, it was i think it was a good compromise for all parties but i liked just the fact that it wasn't they could easily have been seduced by the idea of just massive riches and getting the the largest possible extension and oh man can i the optics of this when i could be getting way more are bad but as it turned out that was a great idea because i don't think he if he were going to be a free agent this year i don't know if he gets 100 million guaranteed i think it's very unlikely he wouldn't 
I would go even higher for a couple reasons. One, the risk mitigation. I mean, Draymond Draymond was is getting older. You know, like he, so as we're recording this, he's he's just turned thirty, and the market didn't really bear out. But also remember that he got a player option on that last year, and that's something you talked about the pound of flesh. That's something the Warriors very rarely give out, and and could end up being useful for him. You know, my expectation based on how Draymond has played this year is that he will pick it up and just go with it. But theoretically, if he were doing better, he could opt out and do whatever he wanted there. Yeah, I think the, those veteran extension negotiations, those are tough ones. I, I, I do give a lot of credit when the team and the player are able to get that done. Montrose Harold don't really have much to, to say about him yet uh, because his last contract, he actually left Clutch in June of 2018, joined Drew Rosenhaus's agency, and then returned to Clutch in July of 2019. I thought Rosenhaus's agency did a pretty good job to get him two years, $12 million as a restricted free agent at the time. And it's going to pay off for him, too, that it was only two years instead of three. But I I don't know whether Harold just wasn't happy with that or whatever. But now he's back with Clutch. And previously, when he was with Clutch, he was the 32nd overall pick back in 2015 and and got a pretty normal contract uh, for that type of player so there, there's a thought he could be drafted in the first round uh, so I, I gave him a little bit below average there uh with a c minus but not really a ton of data um and as it turned out it was good for him that it, he ended up being drafted in the second round but everyone wants to be drafted in the first round if they can um Taylor horton tucker was basically a c for me drafted 46 overall uh to the lakers and got a two-year deal it was good that he got guaranteed money in the second year. That a lot, a yeah. lot of mid seconds don't get that. Yeah, yeah. So actually, I should bump that up. That's probably a uh, that's probably a B minus actually to be picked forty sixth. And, and I I don't really had I didn't really have a great idea of him like being supposed to go higher or something like that. LeBron James, I gave this a B for his three plus one with the Lakers, if only because I thought they just managed the PR of his move to the Lakers extremely well. There just wasn't the backlash that there was before. And that helped, of course, that he won a championship in Cleveland, but it didn't seem like anyone was mad that he left at that point. And he didn't do some big decision thing, announced it early so that there wasn't too much resentment about making everyone wait. So that that was definitely, I thought they did a good job with that and then uh his previous deal was a two plus one for 100 million the maximum and give him a b there as well because just to not lock in for too long uh, and get out of cleveland when, it, when he wanted to get out so that was all i thought they did a, a solid job for him there obviously lebron is a, a big part of his own destiny but we're trying to be uh as objective this, about this as we can and i thought that those those contracts were both good for lebron yeah i agree Corey joseph Three years, thirty-seven million, but the last year largely non-guaranteed. What's his guaranteed money in that last year? Four million guaranteed. So overall, it was about twenty-eight million guaranteed over three years. Three years, thirty-seven million in total. I uh, that's a solid, solid B plus. Yeah, cool. I mean, it's looking good for Joseph after after year one. Yeah, because because he's really struggled. The, the those back. I mean, for any non-starter to get that kind of money is pretty good. And then he did well with an equivalent contract in the summer of twenty. 20- 15 to sign a three-year 40 million dollar deal when i say equivalent i mean just based on what the salary cap was at that time he also was a restricted free agent they got san antonio withdraw the qualifying offer so he could sign that got traded to indiana in in the middle of that deal but i i gave that a solid uh, actually i should go higher on that uh i think that's a, a solid b plus as well so um very good job for Corey joseph who's been with them for a long time trey lyle's 
this one, I think they haven't really done a good job for him. Well, I mean, you could go all the way back to Denver, right? Because he's, he's been a longtime clutch client too. Yeah. Now, he, he did get traded to from Utah to Denver um, in the Donovan Mitchell deal and had a, a major role in Denver at times shooting the ball really well. He got traded after his second year. That was actually now Lyles was like a little bit of a malcontent in Utah his second year when they acquired Boris Dion he wasn't really playing so in some ways maybe it was a good job to get him traded to Denver where he would play more but then I thought where it really went wrong was and I gave him a D overall for this was not taking whatever extension offer Denver made I do know that they made him an extension offer I don't know how much it was but I'm guessing uh there probably would have been more guaranteed money than five and a half million in whatever that extension offer was and that's what he ended up having to take uh two years 11 million second year non-guaranteed and remember that was largely as a response to the to the Marcus Morris fiasco yeah yeah I mean it, who knows if even that offer would have been there for him had the Marcus Morris thing not happened so yeah and initially getting him drafted 12th that's right about where he was supposed to go so uh, that that contract i gave a c2 but this was i mean i i actually i might even go a little bit lower i think that a d might not be harsh enough i think a, a d minus the more i think about it uh is probably warranted because i mean to get five and a half million and it's not like he's played so well in san antonio I mean, this is one where they just and, and this could partially be the player too but they just completely overvalued where he was at at just about every single possible turn ben mclemore became a clutch client in november of 2014 he'd previously been with rodney blackstone chronologically as a restricted free agent in sacramento he was able to get out of there and sign a two-year deal fully guaranteed with memphis two-year 10.7 million i thought that given where he was in his career that was a pretty good contract for him to get it was a decent risk for memphis because he was kind of the second draft guy but as it turned out macklemore couldn't help the grizzlies at all so i i went for an a minus on that particular contract agreed uh, and then I think even his deal with Houston, two years, 4.3 million, very little was guaranteed, only about 500,000. But given where Macklemore, how fringy he was at that point, even getting that was good. And then to have it be a little bit more too uh, than the minimum, I thought that was a solid B effort there as well. Yeah, and, and also part of being an agent for lower level clients, which is not what Sacramento envisioned for Macklemore or Macklemore for himself when he was drafted, is putting them in a chance to succeed. And I thought that Macklemore on Houston, a team where he doesn't have to dribble, is a very good fit. All right, we got a little bit more here to get to. Nerlens Noel will be uh, a complicated one. Ben Simmons, Tristan Thompson, John Wall, right after this. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. DeJounte Murray, I thought this was a, a it, it started off in his career, got drafted 29th. I gave that a D. He was supposed to go higher than that. Uh, but again, ended up going to the Spurs, ended up being pretty good for his career. But still, to go 29th, clearly, I think he would have been disappointed with that at that time. And most, I think there are a lot of people talking about him going in the teens then in that 2016 draft. But then to sign a four-year, $64 million deal in an extension, rookie scale extension this year, that I thought was solid work. I, I gave that a B given that he was coming off the torn ACL. I, I don't think he's like 
had such a good year this year that he's outperformed that number well and coming back either rich paul couldn't have known all of this at the time but the market for teams with cap space looking for point guards is really rough so that it would have largely been paul negotiating against san antonio potentially threatening to use the qualifying offer and that would have been really tough yeah this is going to be a rough market i think not as bad as 2018 but still pretty bad this one is maybe the biggest stain on rich paul's resume to me uh straight f on nerland's noel in the summer of 2017 noel was with happy walters it was a five-year 70 million dollar deal many sources have reported that that he was offered before free agency began from the mavericks other reporting has indicated that walters was encouraging him to take that and then nerland's noel did not take it and then he signed with rich paul so it's again i think it's a reasonable inference and that rich paul was saying hey don't take this take the qualifying offer i can get you more and he took the qualifying offer and he's been on minimum contracts ever since and the other part of this i mean obviously turning down the 570 and and largely getting minimum contracts is bad enough but he played pretty well on some of those minimum contracts and then only got minimum contracts after that too yeah i mean that was just not not having an understanding of the center market and by many accounts noel is is not the easiest guy in the world to deal with but clearly rich paul told him something which was along the lines of you can get more than five for 70 and that uh that did not appear to be the case but i I shouldn't say clearly like we don't know that for absolute sure but i think that is a very reasonable inference uh yusuf nurkic nothing really to say on him he joined the uh in october of 2019 his previous agent kind of messed things up a little bit. There was a, a five-year, $65 million offer, I think, that was reported in an extension from Portland. He ended up getting four years, $48 million, with the last year only partially guaranteed. So that, that was not as good. Maybe it might have even been four years, $65 million. Uh, oh, yeah, it would have been if it was an extension. So, yeah, that was obviously uh, not a very good job there. Ben Simmons gave him a... I mean, he was always going to go first overall, so that was that was a C. And then the rookie stale extension, just a, a C plus on that one. Five years, hundred and seventy million to get that done right at the start of free agency with without much haggling. Um, but I mean, I could you could talk me into just a regular C there too. And Simmons did not get a player option. He did get a fifteen percent trade bonus, which is nice. But um, it's yeah, I, I I might go a little bit higher, but I've I've been you know I thought there was maybe a little bit more risk in Ben. Simmons for agency but not that much risk yeah not getting not getting the player option but I mean now with this back thing too I mean that's why you sign these extensions exactly right? I mean so I'd go yeah, I'd I, go I a mean, little higher but that's not yeah. a huge I mean I thought it was a fair compromise you know I think that the team did well if, if you're asking for the four plus one and I'm the team I'm like okay well why would we do this why wouldn't we just go to restricted free agency at that point um J.R. Smith four years 57 million is what he signed in 2016 that ended up being pretty good you remember they had this weird situation where they were waiting for like two or three months and so finally they agreed on it the last year was non-guaranteed it was only i think about 2.9 million guaranteed and then smith ended up getting stretched this year after not playing at all last year and i think uh, so now he doesn't have a contract he's been unsigned i think they didn't do a very good job with managing that situation again jr not the easiest to get along with the times but to not to get him in a situation where he was on cleveland's roster all year he wasn't playing because they wanted to maybe try to trade him because remember he was grandfathered in as a previous cba so he actually was one of those players where he had a low guarantee number but he could count it as full salary they've taken that away in the new cba so cleveland wanted to hold on to him he 
doesn't play at all all year and then he ends up unsigned because everyone thinks he's just a headache and he can't play anymore they needed to figure out a way that he could behave and still be playing so he could get some market value and you know he might just be done who knows but i i gave him a d for the work after that contract yeah because yeah um Tristan Thompson finishing out a five-year $82 million deal. This is another one that went after the Cavs 2015 finals appearance, went way into October. They actually let the qualifying offer expire, which we thought would be a problem, but they also needed Tristan Thompson that year. Eventually, they did all that to just bump up the deal by like another $2 million or so. Reported, I think they offered him, it was reported they offered him five for 80 on the first year, first day of free agency. And finally, they kind of didn't really have any leverage, but got another $2 million just to uh, avoid, uh, to allow him to save face. And that was a good deal, though. Ultimately, I mean, they had the leverage. The Cavs needed I thought it ended up being a fair deal. And Thompson, It was like the same money as Draymond Green. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, supposedly, actually, it was that report from Thompson led to Draymond signing his deal. And then Thompson didn't actually end up signing it. Um, But I, I thought they did well there, especially because they turned down a far less lucrative extension offer that was in like the $10 million a year range in the summer of 2014, the fall of 2014. And so to then get that much more, that, that ended up being a, a gamble that really worked out. So... Uh, that I, I went with uh an a minus uh, for the whole deal tristan thompson very much on board with that i thought he did well and we don't know what extension offers were on the table this year but i'm guessing cleveland wasn't offering anything crazy so i tried researching this i'm pretty sure that Deion waiters was with rich paul back in the summer of 2017 but i couldn't 100 confirm that because there are a bunch of other reports that were like clogging up my google searches but four years 52 million that worked out great previously they signed a one-year deal with miami that worked out, out great as well because he was able to really improve his body that he the heat culture at least worked out for him for a year until he uh then began to chafe in it a little bit but four years 52 million for Deion waiters based on basically like 40 good games uh, that was pretty good uh, ultimately so that was uh i gave that a solid b plus last one here john wall when you get a guy how high of an a can you give yeah yeah i mean this is i always joke with with people about this where it's like hey when we're saying it's a bad contract for the team you probably got to give the agent a pretty good grade (laughs) so uh a pure a for this one uh also got a trade kicker also a player option yes yeah which uh you know as i think about it you might pick up but still, it was, uh, was worthwhile. Considering your cowardice on A-pluses, I think you should give him an A-plus. Well, I, the reason I can't do that is because I'm doing putting these grades numerically into my sheet so I can average them. <laughs> and so a four, a four is as high as I can go. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this one, and, and this is a, a situation too where they got the designated player vendor extension, but it was two years before he was going to be a free agent. He qualified for it. But I mean, they basically got the Wizards to give them the no-brainer, everything you possibly can. And uh, that maybe wasn't a no-brainer. It was another kind of no-brainer, but not like an easy decision kind of no-brainer as, and, as it turned out. And it's out. true as things turned out that this looks a lot worse for the Wizards than it did at the time. But yeah. giving Wall- We still had major questions about it at the right. time. This was this is the summer of 2017, right after the, the new CBA came in. Um, so yeah, no, that, that was a good job. And, and he had, John Wall had left- from the late Dan Fegan to join Clutch in January of 2016. Some of that was uh, on, I think, due to some of Wall's frustration with his shoe issues. Um, but that's that again is not part of, of this exercise. So, all right, that's uh, 
that will kind of do it for for rich paul at least in terms of going through the individual players his uh average gpa is a 2.4 so pretty decent um i think some of the commentary that i've gotten just uh, asking around which again i'm trying not to put very much weight on but i think it's worth discussing uh that he is one of the best agents to have if you're a max guy that he is pretty skilled at using pulling the levers of power and getting guys to where they want to be i think that that track record with davis and lebron uh, that is been pretty clear so far yeah Um, Draymond I think is another example of that my advice if you have an offer on the table and Rich Paul tells you that you can get more would be don't listen to him (laughs) uh I mean we'll see if that happens with with Malik especially if you're in a in a restricted free agency situation and you know I'm sure there are many agents I mean that's the number one thing you're gonna say is you're trying to poach someone is say hey I can get you more um but that's uh, that's one where hopefully you can have a little bit more independent advice. I mean, I think generally, generally my thought would be if you're a player is if your agent tells you to take something, you probably should. That especially if you're you haven't made a lot of money in your career yet. You know, it's one thing if you've already made sixty million bucks and you've got a tolerance for risk and you want to really try and break the bank. But yeah, if you're talking about like a rookie scale contract coming off of that and you've got a nice eight figure deal in front of you, it's uh, and especially if you're not like a clear superstar or something so yeah that's uh and paul to to defend him certainly that 2016 2017 time frame that was a very difficult time for everyone to anticipate the market because there was just so much yo-yoing and it, first it was people were underestimating how much space there would be in 2016 then 2016 was such a bonanza that people thought that would be the case in the future in part because the league salary cap estimates ended up being inaccurate because there was so much 2016 spending so a lot of a lot of agents a lot of teams struggled in that area but you know i mean his two biggest mistakes probably are kcp and Orleans, and both those happened in that summer of 2017 um all right i think that that can be the end here uh, anything you need to talk about before we go yeah uh earlier on thursday i recorded and released uh the real jam radio podcast for this week with ethan sherwood strauss we talked about his new upcoming book the victory machine i wanted to read the entire thing before we talked about it so we we went into some some uh, without spoiling anything from it went in, went into some detail and also because it's the two of us got into the hiatus and some of the rating stuff and everything else but it was a great conversation yeah i'm gonna not listen to that because i want to read the book first but uh i think for those who are because I, I was gonna read anyway for those who are on the fence though i'm sure ethan uh does a, a great job of explaining why it's so awesome I mean, and and the conversations that he and i have had to uh it's gonna be pretty pretty good book um but i'll be i'll be waiting until the official release date to read it uh, like everyone else so that'll do it here stay tuned gonna have ben taylor on to do our at least semi-daily COVID 19 update thanks to all those who have given us feedback and let's bring in ben right now all right, Ben is here now. We're, we're going to start with our mostly daily COVID-19 roundup. Uh, and, and if this is your first time listening to this, we're basically trying to read as much news as we can. I mean, I've probably spent five, six hours a day doing reading on this. I don't know, but Ben, how, how much time have you been spending on it? I, I have an IV at this point, Nate. I just <laughs> put it in my arm when I wake up. Uh, no, it's it's a lot. It's it's a lot to take in in the morning uh, and at night. And as I said last time, I'm trying to also keep up with anything that's either published or pre-printed in the medic. I, I tend to read a lot of journals and things like that. So um, it, it's a steady dose and things are happening fast. And that's the nature of, you know, being in the in the middle of a global pandemic. And so hopefully we can help make some sense of that and 
presented in a clear way thanks to all of you who gave us feedback by the way as well that was really useful it seems like people want us to keep doing it we had a few people say hey i don't mind if you put it at the end i'm not going to listen to it because i want to just i listen to you guys to escape but we totally understand that too not going to take it personally but uh it seems like people enjoyed this and so uh i mean as much as you can enjoy it maybe that's the wrong word to to use but uh found it useful uh so we're gonna keep trying to do this um let's get started with the the news today um what stuck out the most to you over the last uh, 24 hours or so since we recorded oh i think the uh the hot spots in the united states that are now starting to pop up specifically things that are happening in new york uh, there's also word coming out of detroit that you know hospitals are being overrun there and they're at capacity and just so sort of finally you know seeing that that breaking point arrive here domestically after seeing these same patterns in other places in the world in italy and in spain um that that's probably been the the biggest one for me to see in the last day or two yeah new york uh there had been some positive evidence a couple days before that things might be slowing but then there was a big increase in hospitalizations in new york there are now over six thousand people hospitalized after we'd seen some slower growth for two days after that uh new orleans now has uh the highest per capita death rate of uh, all american counties that's orleans paris which is paris is what they call a county in louisiana and detroit is not looking good either yeah, so I saw one um, study printed by the New York Times that basically said the growth rate down in New Orleans and Louisiana is the fastest of anywhere right now. And I, I guess the big concern from just a, a practical real life standpoint is they had Mardi Gras a couple weeks ago. Um, and that, uh, that of course, would be a, a magnifier for transmission. So that's taking place down there. Um, and then in Detroit specifically, you, you know, like... It actually doesn't take too much to overrun a hospital when you start thinking about the numbers that are coming in. Uh, and so I've even seen that online where, you know, there are some people on social media saying, like, I don't get it. We're only talking about a few dozen or a few hundred cases. Um, well, if they're concentrated in an area, there's a, a nurse out of Oakland County um, who had a, a viral video talking about basically how they're out of things like Tylenol. Um, how, you know, the, the custodial staff has to be sort of separated. And so who's picking up the extra things in the hospital? Um, they don't have the proper medication to even intubate patients if they want to put them on ventilators. So these are the kinds of things that like start to occur on the ground that are very real that, that overrun the hospitals. And then, you know, people cannot get life-saving care that they need. Yeah, and I've also seen some disturbing stories. The Sacramento Bee had an article today talking about rural California hospitals, and it's much the same in rural areas. I think a lot of people are under the impression, well, okay, don't be in a city because you're not around a bunch of people, and you know that's that will prevent you from suffering the outbreak because in cities there's dense, it's going to travel from person to person more often. I'm sure there's something to that, but the problem is that in rural areas, especially the a lot of these hospitals are close to being underwater water financially anyway you know if you have three icu beds in a whole hospital right? Like right some of these some of these places if you get a car crash with four people that's like a huge rush all of a sudden you know because they just don't have the capacity on a day-to-day -day basis and so certainly it's possible that some rural areas could get spared due to the lack of density and just the lack of travel to and from those areas but if you do get hit at all like that might be one of the worst places to be ultimately yeah and and you know to to nerd out it's the average of a thing does not represent the distribution. So in New York City, for instance, once you start to have a lot of cases 
come in. Uh, if you get hit in one particular area more than another, the average or the total number might not necessarily convey how hard that single community got hit. Uh, it was, I guess I have it here, Elmhurst Hospital, um, you know, Mayor de Blasio out of New York was saying that they had 13 deaths in 24 hours. I mean, th- this is, um, you know, these are these are huge things that if they're concentrated in a single area can completely strain the hospital service in that area. Yeah. And we really haven't seen much so far in the way of any kind of mobile resources, uh, which would probably need to be coordinated at, at the federal level. I mean, some states are big enough, maybe that you can do that. Yeah. Let me but- let me hop in on that, Nate, actually, because uh, they are sending the, the two Navy medical ships out to duty. Um, the the USNS Comfort is being sent to New York City. So these are these are basically giant floating hospitals. They have like a thousand beds. They have typically over a thousand medical staff. Um, one is being sent to New York. The other actually just arrived here in Los Angeles this morning as of recording this. And the idea, I guess, in both cases, is they're going to serve as hospitals and 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 you know beds and medical care and all this stuff for people who do not have COVID nineteen. So they. Can can isolate those patients. You know, that's such a big deal uh, is contamination. And so they can take all those patients, they can route all those patients. If you're if you're in a car accident or something in New York, in theory, you might be taken uh, to, to a floating hospital instead of a, a land-bound hospital. Yeah. And, and I, I think that that's something that not necessarily uh, in ship form, but those sorts of separations are going to need to start happening and you know more capacity is going to have to get built in somehow i I wanted to shift now to the idea that many have been talking about obviously how we're going to reopen how long is this going to take and i think it's important to set our expectations so there's a, a new study that came out today from the university of washington that i kind of view it as a best case scenario essentially that it looks at the what would happen if all states adopt and continue to adopt stringent social distancing. What do we have in terms of number of cases being able to reopen the country in theory? And that concluded, and obviously there, this, there are some pretty big error margins on these studies, as there should be. There's so much uncertainty, especially because we don't know exactly how well social distancing is working. But it seems to be getting to the point now where it has flattened the curve in Washington so far. This study indicates that in Washington, they are not expecting that ICUs are going to be overloaded over the next couple of months if social distancing can be maintained. Of course, that is a huge if. I think Washington has done a good job so far, and uh, their leadership seems uh, to get it. Uh, but that's not necessarily going to be the case for the rest of the country. But in the best case scenario where we maintain social distancing as long as we need to to really get this under control, they project that about 81,000 people in the U.S. would die by the 1st of July, 1,400 in Washington state. Yeah, I mean, it's it's and that is a scenario where we've got all this in place, you flatten the curve. Um, and there's some range in that projection. They're sort of error bands are anywhere between 40 and 160,000 deaths. But uh, I think it I think it at least puts into perspective the severity and sort of widespread nature that would be something that would be considered almost a success. Um 
just looking at the graph here in the background from their modeling without getting into their modeling or anything like that, the assumptions they're essentially making is we start to level out the curve and it still takes time to level out the curve. Um, you know, we're always going to be a few weeks behind before we take any measures. There are different measures um, that are being taken sort of atemporally around the country. You know, one city in the West Coast shuts down a couple of days later, another one on the East Coast. And so the, their idea, if you look at the model, is basically... As we roll to the end of May, we slow things down. But by the end of May, when we slow things down, we're very quickly, just because of exponential growth, going to be you know somewhere between 40 and 150,000 deaths. And some of that is just the sheer population of the country. But it also puts into perspective that you know the, these are this is what we're dealing with here. This is what we're trying to uh, you know sort of keep at bay. Yeah, and the other important thing to note here is that even under this again kind of. I'm I'm thinking of this as a best case scenario because this model assumes that we're going to have social distancing enacted everywhere effectively over this whole time. I don't think that that is necessarily a realistic assumption given the, the political realities right now. But again, under this scenario, restrictions would need to continue into late May or early June. And that's in Washington. The rest of the country realistically is probably behind Washington as far as locking things down. They're one of the first to close schools. For example, they had the, the worst outbreak initially. Uh, and Again, under this kind of best case scenario, they forecast that hospitalizations are generally going to peak mid-April, end of April, early May with 64,000 more patients than licensed hospital beds nationwide as our capacity currently is and a shortfall in ICU beds at about 17,000. Uh, and that's nationwide too. Now, if you have hot spots like New York City then and you can't bring more resources to bear or transfer patients elsewhere or, and move from high capacity or uh, move from high incidence areas to where there's extra capacity, then th that could end up being even worse because, you know, you're just not having the distribution of care that matches with the distribution of patients. And I think, I mean, this is, it's all very morbid, but I think the thing um, that's really worthwhile for me to take away from this or maybe to convey out is, is A, setting expectations and then B, understanding, you know, there's a lag in things, um, even, even large extreme measures take some time and then having, having a perspective of like, well, if we don't take those measures, um, <laughs> things will get very, very, very ugly. I mean, as you said, this is a projection with um, most, if not all of these measures slowly coming into place in the next few weeks. Yeah. And of course, if you do reopen, then that would assume that it's under control enough that we can, I mean, you're not going to get infections down to zero at, at that point in June or July. Uh, but you at least would hopefully have the resources to trace contacts and isolate new cases enough so that the rest of society could continue to function on some kind of a level. Of course, that doesn't include potentially people coming in from other places. Not that we're doing so much better than everywhere else where we can even begin talking about like, oh, we got to prevent people coming in from elsewhere. They should probably be more concerned about us going there <laughs> at this point. Um, so that that's just, I, I think, to me, my baseline is, as just as I'm thinking about this and trying to plan my life, that this is going to need to go on until at least mid-June. And again, that's an optimistic scenario. There may be other people who are willing to go out. I'm kind of thinking until this thing's really under control, I'm not going to be doing that uh, to the, the massive extent possible. Well, um, it's a yeah. marathon. I mean, that's there's there's no doubt about it. It's a marathon. And whether that involves you know radical change on the scale of months or whatever, um, th this thing 
thing. All the experts say that this thing is going to be around for a while. The idea of a vaccine coming very quickly uh, is extremely unlikely, if not impossible. And so it, it's it's looking like it's going to be a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, and perhaps they'll find you know, some already existing drugs that actually work, and you know there'll actually be enough testing to show that they work, uh, <laughs> and when they can be used, especially as a prophylactic. You know that that's uh, that seems pretty far away, but maybe that could happen, or you know, the use of antibodies from already recovered patients. You know, maybe that again can slow the spread of this, make it so it's not as bad to get this thing, etc. Um, let's turn to the world now with the incredible news that Boris Johnson and prime minister in the uk has the virus and uh the 55 year old johnson will now be working from home he will be joined in working from home not physically in the same place but uh he will also be working from home uh, their health secretary matt hancock so that's that's pretty incredible that the the leader of one of the biggest nations in the world now has the coronavirus yeah uh, i mean i don't know if it was impossible to predict per se he had he he was talking about interacting with patients um, recently and and you know being close to them and shaking hands and things like that but it's still as 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 i said in the last episode i, I mean this is the kind of thing that is not going to um only select the common person it's just also going to hit celebrities world leaders things like that and, and it's more likely to hit them right they're coming I, in contact with more people i would think so yeah and, and, and you throw in the fact that the people who are more likely to get this originally were people who were traveling i mean generally those are people of means who are are, are more likely to you know, travel around in in the circle you know nba players was another one right that's part of why they were also so high risk yeah and i mean iran um they just had so many secretaries uh, affected by this right away as well so yeah i mean it it is uh all said it's still it's still pretty shocking news and and we'll probably ha have more stories like that going forward uh wanted to talk a little bit more about brazil i was probably too glib in our last episode uh with joking a little bit about uh, uh their president but uh there are actually i mean kind of in similar fashion to us there are things that are being done there the governor of sao paulo has a 15-day quarantine in place that runs until april 7th only essential services are remaining operational uh the state of rio de janeiro closed all beaches bars restaurants for 15 days uh those have the largest number of cases so that they are there are actually measures that have gone into effect there there's been some conflict between the president and the regional authorities but brazil 2900 cases and 77 deaths uh, that is the most in latin america second most is uh, chile with 1600 confirmed cases only five deaths which is which is interesting that that always kind of raises my eyebrows a little bit when you see a big disparity in either direction from the the normal death rate there so, but the, that's, yeah, yeah go ahead well so when you see that uh, people may be wondering why you see that and and the like simplest first answer is that everyone isn't playing by the same rules so if you test if one country tests people that uh, are only in a high-risk population and symptomatic um, then you're going to have a certain number of positive tests relative to your uh, hospitalizations and your fatalities and if you are just testing people indiscriminately i guess iceland now is uh, just trying to basically test 
test their entire population. Um, so you'll see those different numbers. And then the second thing to consider there that always happens is it takes time, um, not just for people to contract the virus, but if you have a fatality that takes a certain number of days typically to run its course, you have to catch it, you have to become symptomatic. Um, and then it takes a certain amount of time before you typically follow this path of getting into the hospital um, and then things turn really south. So that will change those numbers as you get more data. But that's just always something to keep in mind that when you look at those big boards, we're not comparing apples to apples with every country, especially early on. Yeah. And we'll talk more about that uh, a little bit later on when we get to uh, the problem of asymptomatic carriers. Elsewhere, uh, the defense secretary in the Philippines, who's uh, at least one source referred to him as the second most powerful man in the Philippines, he has tested positive. He is in quarantine. That is uh, Delphin Lorenzana. Hopefully I, I pronounced that correctly. I, I can't say I was familiar with him before I, I saw that news. Uh, and what's going on in South Korea these days? So South Korea has, um, to your point earlier, basically set up uh, for passengers incoming from the United States a set of rules. So uh, if you come from the United States, you enter a 14-day quarantine. If your stay is shorter, then maybe uh, you can go under some special watch and quickly be released to where you're going as long as you pass a bunch of tests and you are shown to not be a carrier. Uh, but basically... Anybody coming back into South Korea, uh, they are, you know, taking measures, especially if you're coming from a place like the United States. And so this is just yet another example of countries saying, hey, we, we still need to have some kind of permeable membrane. We still need to have a border that people can come and go from in some capacity. But we're going to ramp up our uh, sort of restrictions and security measures uh, as much as possible. Yeah, China taking a little bit more stringent of an approach. They have closed their borders now to foreign travelers, uh, at least based on their reporting, which uh, many believe uh, is suspect. Uh, another thing that we'll get to uh, in a moment here. Uh, by the way, by the way I, wanted, I wanted to just add, um, just so people understand, some places are even enforcing, you know, if you're if you're sent about um, in a in a situation where you're allowed to enter the country, but you have restricted movement or you're supposed to quarantine and you fail, you fail to quarantine. Some people are now being arrested, charged with fines. I believe in theory in South Korea, they were saying um, if you break the quarantine, it can be up to a year in prison. So these, these are measures that are being taken uh, quite seriously in these places. Yeah, that's a, a good thing to know. I mean, we haven't really seen much in terms of penalties for this stuff here yet, um, but it, it has been more stringent in other places. There's some reports out of India, anecdotal so far, I haven't looked into it that much, that uh, there's been some very severe enforcement of some of their curfews. Um, back to China, they close their borders to foreign travelers. There's this thought that they don't have native cases anymore, essentially, and that all the cases that they've been tracking have been people coming back from overseas. Many of those, of course, are Chinese nationals who who are returning. So it doesn't necessarily make that much much sense to close it to foreign travelers. Maybe that's just a, a thought that we just don't have a choice with regard to Chinese citizens. Like they have to come back. And so let's at least reduce. It. I mean, I certainly understand the feeling, right? They feel like they've gotten through all of this and that they can slowly reopen their society, as we talked about in the last episode. But they don't want people coming in from outside and messing it up. I'm sure we would feel pretty similarly if we were able to largely get this under control in other areas of the world uh, were not. Yeah, and the term I've heard used recently is sparks. 
So in other words, you you yeah. you calm the fire, you 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 basically put it out. It's not spreading like wildfire anymore. And then when you have when you start to open up uh, international transit, you have people from other places where they haven't had it locked down, or you could be a carrier. You come in, and then you start a little. You know, you have the potential to start another little hotspot if you can get in and that goes undetected. So th- I think this is probably, um, I don't want to speculate too much, but probably just going to be the norm for sort of the way each country has to balance and handle, hey, what if we have it under control, once we feel like we have it under control, we're going to need people coming from other places uh, to kind of, you know, be at our level if they're going to come in, if you will. Staggering news out of Ailey that over 40 health workers have died. Yeah. I mean, that and the lack of protective equipment there, I mean, we're going to start seeing the same thing here. I mean, there's no reason to believe that it's not going to be the same here as it was there. And we may already be getting there in New York. There's a report already that a, a nurse in New York died from uh, from COVID-19. Yeah. And if I could, if I could hop on a mini soapbox, I mean, we said this last, last episode, but we, in a way, are, are privileged, at least we have the, the knowledge in advance to see the patterns in these other places, Italy, and then even Spain really uh, has repeated this pattern, and now it's probably going to happen here. And so, to your point, um, however many it is, our health workers on the front lines are exposed. Um, there's just not enough protective equipment right now, and even with the protective equipment in place, some I mean, you're still putting yourself in harm's way in a sense every day, and so just the sheer numbers of this are going to expose more people, unfortunately. Yeah, and I mean, I just I can't imagine being in that situation and just how upset I would feel, and yet being able to overcome that and still do my job. Uh, I mean, I, I just like the the level of selflessness that that takes to me is just incredible. One thing that's slightly encouraging on that front, uh, Stanford. A study that they had found that there is a way to reuse N95 masks. You can heat it in an oven, not your home oven, for 158 degrees uh, for 30 minutes. Or you can heat it over hot water vapor from boiling water for 10 minutes. And that that enables you to safely and effectively decontaminate the N95 mask and reuse it. And so that I thought that was encouraging, at least. Hopefully, we're going to continue to find these ways where, you know, in quote-unquote peacetime, yeah, d- don't even bother. Throw, throw away the mask, get another one. These things are 75 cents. It's better not to have to worry about whether you decontaminate it or not but under these circumstances it's good to see that there are at least ways where you can reuse some of this stuff uh although it is sad that we are in that situation so the the hope here uh assuming that you know that that's actually the study has demonstrated that is the hope here is that if you are a healthcare professional uh, and you start to have a shortage of n95s that instead of discarding i mean the other thing is it's practical considerations here if you're in a if you're on a shift for a huge number of hours but in theory the idea nate right is that in that position you could then uh, go home and the, the issue with the masks is they get all contaminated and gunked up but if you could if you could take these steps and in, in uh, i guess you're baking them basically right uh then you could reuse them in that situation two more things we want to talk about here getting in more to just the, the nature of this virus not not as much news the issue of asymptomatic carriers we talked in the last episode of just how this virus is just such a motherfucker because you've you have so many people who are able to walk around and spread it around and 
it seems like there are a significant number of asymptomatic carriers between 10 and 40 percent of those testing positives either don't have symptoms or are pre-symptomatic um that is now the question is whether they transmit the virus or not a little bit of evidence to support that between 10 and 40 percent number the south china morning post which is out, out of hong kong they obtained classified Chinese documents indicating that about 43,000 people that were tested had no symptoms but tested positive. And the way that China was classifying cases, they weren't releasing that data. They had to obtain it from classified documents. But there are about 89,000 officially classified as cases. Those are the ones who actually show symptoms. And then 43,000 additionally who are kind of not reported were without symptoms. Um, and so that's that's about... 30% right yep. there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's about a third. Um, uh, the short answer on this, my understanding from speaking to epidemiologists, uh, the, the, the short answer is that you just won't really know until you can actually get blood draws and the, the serological data um, to see who had antibodies later on. This is a common practice. They, they go do this uh, later on in the season and try to estimate the total number of as asymptomatics. But it does seem to be from all the different data points we can get in this range, I don't know if it's 40% or 20%. I've seen a lot of studies. There's one mathematical study out there that tries to ballpark it at 30%. Whatever it is, either way, um, I think probably the most practical takeaway for us at home is that A, you can be asymptomatic and carrying, and B, you can transmit when you're asymptomatic as well. And that's part of what makes this thing so dangerous and so difficult to, to handle. Yeah, it's there are varying estimates on how much you can be transmitting when you are asymptomatic. But uh, the WHO said that's not a trans significant transmission vehicle. One to three percent of cases of asymptomatics uh, they estimate actually transmit the virus. Yeah, I, I think that's old. I yeah. think that's old. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 it does seem that way because yeah. uh, a UT Austin study estimated that ten percent of cases uh, are transmitted by those who are asymptomatic. Not that ten percent of asymptomatic people transmit, but that ten percent of cases result from transmission by people who are asymptomatic, which is, that's a pretty big number. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think in general, there's, there's going to be uncertainty early on, but there, there does seem to be uh, a, a pretty hefty amount of evidence that th that is part of the story. And then the, the other wrinkle there that I should mention um, is that the way we define asymptomatic sometimes is even funky oh yeah right because because think about it um if you're listening right now now maybe you know because of COVID-19 but you know you might have a sneeze or a cough or something during the week clearing your throat dry throat something that you may chalk up to allergies and is yeah, that a little symptom temperature or, spike yes or something exactly like that, that you don't yeah. take your temperature is that a symptom or not for a lot of people they don't even notice um, but then medically you could classify that as a symptom so it, it's just sort of it's a gray area uh it's something that is going to impact your numbers, your projections, your estimates. But the goal as it's going on, from my understanding, is to uh, try to not be too dogmatic about it, but understand the ranges and then take defensive measures based on uh, what those ranges could be when you project things or as individuals when we go out uh, trying not to get close to people and things like that. I also wanted to share a, a Taiwanese study that indicates that more transmission of the disease occurs near symptom onset. So the conclusion was that right around the time that you become symptomatic, that is when you are transmitting the virus the most to others. And so that again goes in with, you know, asymptomatic starting to become symptomatic. That apparently is when you are transmitting the virus the most. And so the scary part about that is 
Well, finding and isolating symptomatic patients, that alone may not be enough to contain things uh, because if it's getting transmitted so rapidly before people start showing symptoms or, you know, I mean, obviously, all right, I just coughed once. I'm not going to immediately go get tested, right? It's probably going to be a day that like, okay, I might really be sick here. I got, but you're transmitting the virus during that period, uh, apparently. Um, But the good news from that is at least that mild cases don't require prolonged hospitalization because there's a reduction of transmissibility over time. So once your body kind of gets the virus under control, now you're transmitting a lot less. Not that you can't transmit it, but that it happens less. So that's, that's at least the one decent thing about that um i want to i want to add something there that was pretty comforting for me and i've i've talked to a lot of friends who have kind of been in this weird psychological place where you you cough and you think like oh my god is this it do i do i have it do i need to get tested what should my level of panic be uh and it was a physician and apologies i can't i can't remember the physician anymore um or or even where i heard the interview but basically the advice was this if you're if you're a young healthy person young could be i mean under 50 under 60 just if you're in general you're not walking around with underlying conditions and you're not in the older age range um you should really do yourself the service of treating your health based on how you feel versus what you fear that was the big that was that was the message what you feel versus what you fear so um as we've been talking about, most of us will cough, clear our throat, sneeze, all these other little subtle things. And that's not something that uh, we need to, you know, think immediately. This actually happened at the beginning. Uh, and I heard some from some friends who worked in ERs when they started to put measures in or publicize this in the United States or declare a state of emergency, they got slammed with everyone calling or wanting to come in saying like, you know, my fever might be 99.1. Do I have COVID-19? I need a test. Uh, and so the advice for me, hopefully for you, comforting as well. Like if you're in that situation, how you feel, not what you fear. Yeah, that's a, that's pretty good advice. And obviously there, there's a concern that the health systems be overwhelmed to some degree with people with mild symptoms. And to the extent we can save that for the people who are really in trouble, that's uh, something we should all be trying to do. Um, Talk about this ibuprofen thing a little bit. Yeah, I, I think. Do you want to just kind of summarize where we're at with that? So, so there's this idea that was circling around the web with ibuprofen um, that yeah. basically yeah. not just circling around the web. I mean, the French health minister, yeah. basically said that you uh, ibuprofen could worsen uh, could worsen COVID nineteen. Yeah, and so so there's some theoretical underpinning here where basically they noticed okay um, the way COVID nineteen enters your body, uh, I guess it binds to this quote-unquote ACE2 receptor. And then if you take ibuprofen, ibuprofen actually um, leads to the production of more of these receptors. And so it could, in theory, make it easier or more likely for COVID-19 to bind to your lungs. And one of the things they're saying is like it it sort of travels from, and this is totally non-scientific here, I'm just sort of regurgitating the high level. It goes from higher up in your system, like near your throat, to your nose, but will travel down into your lungs. When it gets into your lower lungs, that's when things are really bad. And so the theory was, okay, if ibuprofen uh, increases these these receptors, then basically what happens is um, you could be making the case 
worse. You could be making the patient worse when they have COVID if they're taking this to reduce their temperature. And there were a few anecdotal stories coming out of early places like China related to this. And so, uh, I mean, there is at least one video that I saw that was viral that had like millions of views on Instagram talking about this. And basically what we're finding out and this Wired article uh, today or yesterday basically summarizes this very well. Just because there's a theoretical underpinning, that doesn't mean there's any causation. That doesn't mean it actually is related to how well the virus spreads or any of the other factors that we don't know about that allows for reproduction of the virus in your body. And so, you know, it's there's no evidence per se that ibuprofen is actually a problem. Yeah, there's a, there's a theory behind it. I mean, so I think it's just kind of make your own decision on that one at, at this point. I mean, I, I think from what I understand, not taking ibuprofen isn't going to hurt you with this. Um, you could take acetaminophen still and try to reduce your fever that way if that's uh, what you feel like you need to do. But uh, I mean, from my standpoint, if there is a theoretical reason not to and I don't need to take ibuprofen, I guess I we'll just decide not to take it out of an abundance of caution but that's acknowledging that we don't actually know that that's true right that, right, that, right that you and to to be like all right you're gonna you're gonna kill yourself by taking ibuprofen you know that's probably going a little bit too far right and i and i i would say that's what uh the science author of this mary Marin mckenna at wired that's kind of her conclusion as well i mean he, nate you're saying better safe than sorry that that probably makes sense to a lot of us um because there isn't really a cost if you i guess in theory if you had a really bad fever you you might want to move to uh, try to get treatment anyway but if you have a mild fever um one of the things she notes correctly of course is that the increase in temperature in your body is a thing designed designed to kill and fight off invaders. So, um, you know, I guess you could go either way, but the I thought it was an interesting takeaway for how in this time right now, where all these things are unfolding in real time, um, just we need caution in terms, uh, we need humility in a sense, in terms of scientific data, in terms of scientific literacy, in terms of jumping to conclusions about things. It's, it's going to take time to know stuff for certain. And of course, given that nothing wrong with, you know, erring on the side, er, erring on the side of caution yeah it's a, a great lesson to bring to everyone to just say hey we just don't know and maybe you're you're better safe than sorry but uh maybe that's what, what our whole society should be looking at at this point but um i think we can wrap up here and uh we'll be back gonna try and do this at least three times a week or so uh we're we do have our regular jobs as well and it does take a lot of time but we're trying to fix it so hopefully if you listen to this maybe you can not have to spend five hours reading about all this stuff <laughs> yourself too and just say hey, i got i got what i needed to learn the big news today and then maybe now you're free to go live your life after listening to a half hour of this instead of feeling like you have to spend hours reading about it too so hopefully that provides a, a little bit of a service for you and uh for ben this is nate and we'll talk to you next time at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line whatever the sport whatever the moment it's never ordinary at bet 365 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.